We are moving through the book of Isaiah. We're in Isaiah chapter 45 this morning. If you are using the Bible that's in the rack in front of you that looks like this, you can find that on page 605, page 605, Isaiah 45. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Isaiah 45. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, Yahweh, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed you. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I'll make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says Yahweh of hosts. Thus says Yahweh, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. 
All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. Shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says Yahweh who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I Yahweh speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? And there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In Yahweh all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is God's word. You can be seated and join me as we pray. Father, there's no light unless you shine. Our hungry souls remain famished unless you speak. We're like a dry, parched land. And we need your spirit bringing your word to bear, bringing light to our souls, feeding our spiritual hunger, bringing streams in the desert. So that is our prayer together right now before we linger over this word that's just been read, we together ask for the help of your spirit for our own hearts and minds to hear and be changed. And for all who will hear this word, use it in Christ's name. Amen. What happens when we deny or ignore something that is real? Sometimes it can be comical. I remember hearing of a woman who gave birth to a full-term baby without ever having realized she was pregnant. Sometimes it can be hurtful. 
like those who deny things like the Holocaust or the Armenian Genocide. Sometimes it can be serious. Like when we deny that we have some sort of addiction or behave like we're not married when on a business trip. But never is it more dangerous than when we deny our maker. The passage before us is an antidote to that danger. In it, God will prove that he alone is God. And he'll explain the reason he does so is because his heart is for all the nations to know him. Now we're going to look at this passage in four different sections in which with each, I have attempted to provide a memorable but not quite accurate heading. So section number one, verses one to eight, heading number one, fortunes told, fortunes told. Now for this section to make sense, you need to be aware that Isaiah prophesied around 700 B.C., that's, that's before the Babylonians would rise up as a world power, before they would conquer Jerusalem and carry them away as exiles, and it was certainly before Cyrus would arise around 550 B.C. and lead the Persian Empire to conquer Babylon. At the time Isaiah prophesied, there weren't even, even other famous kings by the name Cyrus. It wasn't like James or George. It was a unique name. And yet God himself speaks through Isaiah with remarkable precision. He names Cyrus's name, the point emphasized in verse 4. He describes how he'd conquer nations and eventually face an impregnable stronghold in verses 1 and 2. He describes how Cyrus will be extremely wealthy with the other kingdom's hidden treasures in verse 3. Now, some of those things we could dismiss as vague enough to be inevitably true at some future point. I predict at some future point uh, a king will arise in Africa that will conquer other tribes. I mean, that's kind of how fortune tellers often work, right? Read the present situation really well, then using that data project with just enough dodginess that what you predict will inevitably in some way come true. I see your future. It's hazy. Hold on but it involves great heartache. The darkness is a little too deep to probe, but it will be followed by, yes, I see it, a bright light, warm. Not sure exactly what it is. I mean, I guess you could place some of these prophecies in that category. Loose the belts of kings, 
open doors before him, level exalted places. But there's a reason Yahweh makes such a big deal of naming names in verse 4. You see, Yahweh's fortune, and I put the word in quotes, involves this very specific detail. Now, it's not the only specific detail like that in Isaiah. Yahweh is specific about foretelling the rise of the Babylonians, the virgin birth of Jesus, the atoning death of Jesus, and a whole host of other things. But in our section, the focus is on this name. And this detail is so specific that many secular Bible scholars simply dismiss these types of things as a later addition to the Isaiah tradition. And their main proof for why they offer or why they believe this is that it's simply impossible to be that accurate 150 years prior to something something happening. Which, ironically misses the exact point Yahweh is making in this passage. But their argument also has some other holes. First of all, it's unlikely that the Hebrew Bible would have been respected and revered if later people inserted things claiming them to be God's prophecies. I mean, imagine if somebody added to our Bible... And I predict Doug Ford will rise and rule Ontario. Would you suddenly be like, oh, the Bible's really credible. We wouldn't be more impressed with its accuracy. It actually erode our confidence in the Bible. Now, I know that's not a one-to-one. But there were people who were devoted to Isaiah's scroll by the time Cyrus rose. And if after the fact something like that was added, it would have undercut the very point being made to its original audience who had previously taken Isaiah seriously. And also, if some later hand was writing this, they surely would have included a lot of other details. Like if you're somebody who's going to be like, okay, I'm going to talk about Doug Ford, I'll also talk about COVID, and I'll talk about how he handled that, right? You're going to include some other details to lend specificity that strengthens your credibility. If you're trying to prove prove that God's a good fortune teller, you'd likely describe Babylon's gardens or the way Cyrus diverted the water away from the city so that they could gain access to the city and it would fall. You wouldn't just name a name. I could go on, but there's a point. The premise that this was written later only really makes sense if you assume it couldn't be true that there's a God who can foretell the future. And even then, it's a flimsy argument. But there is a God. A creator God who sits on the throne of history. And he does, 150 years ahead of time, through the mouth of Isaiah, foretell Cyrus. Why does Yahweh do this? 
Why does he name names ahead of time? Verse 6 tells us, look there, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. You see, God wants everyone, including you, and me to know that he alone is God. No other God does this. Read the other holy books. If, if there is a God who can create a world out of nothing, it stands to reason that that God and that God alone would know the future. But among all the so-called gods, there's only one who foretells the future. It's Yahweh, like he does right here. And he does it over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Why? So that all the nations, so that everyone might know that he alone is God. He has no secrets. He wants it to be plain. And so he declares it first and then acts and then wants that proclaimed to the nations. I labeled this section fortunes told. But that's not exactly accurate, is it? For one... A fortune teller is helping the one seeking the fortune to know something about himself. With God, he's revealing something about himself and for all the world to see. But there's another difference between fortune tellers and what Yahweh is doing. You see, Yahweh isn't just attempting to kind of see the future. He writes the future. That's why he can speak of it with accuracy. Look at verse 7. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. I mean, this is a clear and unabashed claim that he writes the future of the world. Now, obviously, when you read something about creating calamity, it opens the door to some deep questions. If God sits on the throne, why do certain awful things happen? As you grapple with this question, the Bible, the rest of the Bible, offers some, I think, helpful and compelling insights into this deep uh, Profound question that we're not going to kind of glibly pass, try and glibly answer right now. But, but God's point here isn't about why bad things happen in this world. His point is to say that everything, you notice the kind of the totality of how he speaks, light and darkness, well-being and calamity, everything is ultimately part of his story. 
You see, he doesn't just see the future, he writes it. He doesn't predict the future, he just tells us ahead of time what he's going to do. And then he ends this section with one more insight about what he's going to do, though it's not as specific as the Cyrus insight. I think it's far more profound. Look at verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. In Hebrew, the word, and Greek, the, the word righteousness and justice are the same word. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I'm Yahweh, I, Yahweh, have created it. See, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the creator, is going to recreate. He's going to transform his creation into something new and better, marked by righteousness and salvation. Our world needs saving. How can we dance when our earth is turning? How can we sleep when our beds are burning? These song lyrics were written in 1987, protesting a specific injustice. But in a certain way, they ring true far beyond their original context. There is something profoundly wrong in our world. It needs saving. And it needs righteousness. Not self-righteousness. Not kind of chest-thumping, holier-than-thou, tongue-clucking righteousness. But a merciful justice. A true goodness. A shalom. Do you feel? Do you feel that longing? Yahweh says that one day salvation and righteousness will begin to ooze from his very own creation. They'll be as natural as rain and as plants. That's what God's ultimately going to be doing. That's where this world is headed. The creator of the heavens and the earth, releasing his creation from the shackles our rebellion has put upon them, so that native to his heaven and earth will be salvation and righteousness, as native as rain and plants. The one true God wants the nations to know that he's the one true God. And he tells us he's going to redeem his creation. Verses 1 to 8, fortunes told. Second section is verses 9 to 13. I've called this section, Who's the Boss? For you guys taking notes, that's Who's the Boss? Got that? Okay. We learned in the first section that God writes the future. He sits on the throne. But sometimes we chafe at God's kingship. 
Maybe we don't like a certain calamity we experience, so we turn against God. Or maybe we don't like that God's using a pagan warrior king, calling him his anointed to deliver his people. Or maybe we disagree with him on this issue or that issue or how he thinks about this, handles this. Regardless of the reason, after the strong assertion of his unique role as the God of the universe who writes the future, Yahweh addresses our chafing against him. And in verses 9 and 10, he just exposes the absurdity of it. Imagine the scene. You're watching an accomplished potter shape a a beautiful vase, gently wetting and shaping the clay as it spins. And suddenly, like some Disney animation, the vase pipes up. Hey, what do you think you're doing? Don't you think I'd look better with handles? It's just plain silly. It's not how things work. Or you imagine a newborn baby critiquing his dad and his mom saying, ah, I don't think you're doing this quite right. It's just plain silly. It's not how things work. But it's exactly what we do. In verse 11, Yahweh reports that he's often told what to do or questioned in his ways. And by whom? By us, his creation. There's almost an air of indignity in his response. I am the creator, he asserts in verse 12. I'm going to be able to raise up Cyrus, a foreign king, to rescue my people without paying them, paying him, he says in verse 13. And so I labeled the section, who's the boss? But it's also not exactly right, is it? I don't know what you think of when you hear that phrase. Maybe, you know, uh, the basketball hoop lowered a little bit so you can all dunk on it when you're kids. And your brother comes, he dunks on it, and he stands over you and flexes, who's the boss? In the typical usage of this phrase, it's two people who have a somewhat level, somewhat equal levels of force and authority who are duking it out until one can assert, who's the boss? But no potter ever flexes over his pottery and says, who's the boss? Think of this scene. The mom's just given birth. They've taken the baby away, cleaned it up, weighed it. They bring it and put her back in her arms. And she goes, oh, yeah, who's the boss? No. And one of the reasons that she's not going to do that is it's not even a question. Hear this. When it comes to power or authority, we have less in common with God than that newborn baby does with her parent. Hear this. When it comes to power and authority, 
the power difference between the pot and the potter is vastly smaller than the power difference between us and Yahweh. So God does not need to thump his chest and say, who's the boss? There's another reason the phrase isn't quite right. And that's because like the mother, it's not God's heart to thump his chest and boast over us. These verses weren't written to thump us. They're graciously written to expose our folly, to open our eyes. They're written because he cares for us. Verse 9 to 13, who's the boss? Third section, verses 14 to 17. Ready for this one? Hide and go seek. Hide and go seek. There are three voices. Three voices in this section. First, Yahweh's announcing that he'll bring the nations of the Nile, which is Cush, Egypt, Sabians, going to bring the nations of the Nile to Israel. Where once Israel flocked to Egypt for safety and were ultimately enchained, there's going to be a great reversal. But then at the end of verse 14, Yahweh quotes these Egyptians, so that's where you hear the second voice. Listen to what they say at the end of verse 14. Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. It might be a little unclear to us whether they're worshiping or they're cowering. In other words, is their fist still up against God? Yeah, now I acknowledge you're real, but... Or have they come to realize that the Almighty God, the Holy One of Israel, is for them too? I think the ambiguity might be intentional, but the point's the same regardless. These idol worshipers who seem to have power in the world have come to acknowledge that there's only one God, the God of Israel. And then in verses 15 to 17, we hear the third voice, probably the voice of Isaiah. He comments on the situation. He says, the idol worshipers have been exposed. God has revealed himself in all his strength. He is stronger than the idols. He rescues Israel, proving that the God of Israel is the one true God. But he also says something strange to us in verse 15. Maybe you noticed it when I read, truly you are a God who hides himself. God who hides himself? Is God some elusive deity who makes himself obscure so that we have to chase around, kind of groping? Well, where is he? Where, what, what's God like? I don't know. What, I can tell it's a spiritual world, but, but oh, is it Mother Nature? Is it my ancestors? Is it... Like the proverbial blind squirrel, maybe, maybe we'll find a nut. No, he's not a hide and seek God. Because in hide and seek, 
It's entirely up to the person who's it to find. But over and over again, in our passage, as well as in the whole Bible, we've seen that God is doing all He can to make Himself known. It's like when you play with a little kid, or one of the really little kids, and they, they hide, and then they're like, I'm over here! Right? <laughs> now it's not the it person trying to find, is it? Remember verse 3? Look at the second half. That you may know, Cyrus, it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by name. Remember verse 6? That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. He wants to make himself known. So in what sense does God hide himself? Unlike in hide and seek, he hides but then unveils himself incrementally. Instead of it being up to the person who's it to find, it's the one who hide, who slowly says, here's a bit more about me. Let me open your eyes. You're looking in the wrong place. And he reveals himself. And there's something profound about the way he does this that, that dr draws us to himself. See, because of God's actions, these blind idol worshipers who at a time he was hidden from them end up acknowledging that he alone is God. And it wasn't because they groped around and eventually found him. Like a good riddle that keeps the answer hidden even as clues are revealed until, aha, the answer is given. God reveals himself in the same way. He does that in the scriptures, in the course of salvation history, but I think he even does that at some level in our own lives. Giving you a bit, showing you I'm here, real, I care for you, come to this church, hear this sermon, this song, this dream, whatever it is, and then eventually he's bringing all these things together to show himself the God of the scriptures. The God who in Christ is redeeming you. A way that makes the full revelation of him more profound. In Isaiah 45, he's not only the one who hides, he's also the one who goes seeking. Or goes revealing more accurately. And he's found by these idol-worshipping Egyptians. Verses 14 to 17, hide and go seek. That takes us to the fourth and final section, verses 18 to 25, simply labeled, The End. The End. It's a sneaky little heading because it's actually the end of the chapter, the last eight verses, but that's not what I mean by The End. I mean that God is declaring the end or purpose of his action in these verses, as in, to what ends? To what end has he been revealing himself and making himself know and declaring Cyrus? Why has he acted as he had with Cyrus? 
Why will he call the Egyptians to Zion? Why is he doing all this? To what end? Listen to what the one who hides himself says. Look with me, starting at the end of verse 18. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I do not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I do not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what's right. I want to reread verse 18 with, I'm going to take three different translations and kind of lump them together because I think it captures so beautifully what's being said in verse 18. He says, I publicly proclaim bold promises. I do not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, foretell reliably. I declare what is right. See what he's saying? Our God is a revealer. He makes bold public promises. They're they're encoded in Scripture, or not encoded, but they're, they're captured in Scripture, written down for everyone to be able to see and examine. And then he fulfills them reliably, initially hidden, then revealed why, to what end, why is he doing this? Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. His heart is that all peoples turn to him and find salvation. That's what verses 20 and 21 are doing. He's asking those who feel he's hidden to come. Okay, tell me what your idols can do. Where are you putting your confidence? Where are you looking to? What can your gods do? Come, assemble, congregate, gather. Is God hidden to you? Assemble. Take counsel. What other God can do what he does? Foretelling and declaring before it happens. Look into it. It's written down here in Scripture. It's written down in Isaiah. In that sense... The Bible is its own proof. That's how God designed it. He wants you to see from the very beginning in Genesis how he foretold exactly what he's going to be doing and gives promises that he fulfills. It's a God that doesn't remain hidden. The God who created, who brought order out of chaos, who brought light out of darkness, he makes himself known. His hide-and-go-seek is different. He writes the future and tells about it ahead of time. To what end? That all the ends of the earth may be saved. The ends of the earth, you get that? 
that you and I can be saved. I'm going to keep going on the end. There's one more way that this section can be thought of as the end. Because it also describes the ultimate end to which all of history is moving. One day, according to verse 23, and, and Yahweh swears this, it's not a word that's going to turn. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Or as Philippians 2 rephrases it, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, like in verse 14, it's not entirely clear if this is worship or resignation. But this is where I think verses 24 and 25 help us. Yahweh says, It shall be said of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. And then it describes two groups of people. At the end of verse 24, there are those who were raged, enraged and incensed about God. Who will come to him in shame. And then in verse 25, there's those who are made righteous or, or justified, again, same word, and therefore glory in Yahweh. The, f- the former group, the verse 24 group, might reluctantly bow the knee. But the latter group, you see how he calls them Israel? They're the true people of God. So Galatians 3, 7 would say, it's, it's the people who are marked as Israel because they share Abraham's faith. The end. The end of our chapter. The end or purpose of God's creation that all would turn and be saved. The end to which history is moving. When all acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God. Verses 18 to 25, the end. So Yahweh has proven he alone is God. This is the reality. And there's nothing comical about denying or ignoring it. We're going to have to grapple with the reality. If we don't now, we will have to when the end comes. But this God has not operated in secret. He foretells what he'll do, is it written down ahead of time, so that we may know. Because his heart, he wants everyone, from the sun's rising to the west, he wants everyone to know him. That's his heart for you. It's his heart for me. It's his heart for everyone. So I want to finish just by asking a question to the Christians here. Does God's heart affect how we live? If God's heart is that all know him, what are we doing to help others know him? How are we making the good news about Jesus known? Maybe it involves going and standing on the sidewalk at the Georgetown Market and asking if people want to talk about Jesus or knocking on doors throughout Georgetown If the latter, you can sign up for that and Matt will give you more information and train you. 
It might involve inviting neighbors or coworkers to study the Bible with us. Again, we have resources to help you with that. It might involve signing up to be someone who prays for the various gospel opportunities that people in our church are encountering. Again, today, there's a sign-up for that. But my point is, if it's God's heart, it should be ours. There's a story about the most famous Baptist pastor of all time, the 19th century preacher named Charles Spurgeon. My favorite limerick was written about him. It goes like this. There once was a preacher named Spurgey who didn't care much for liturgy. His sermons were fine. I use them as mine, and so do the rest of the clergy. <laughs> he told the story about how he came to faith. He was traveling in a blizzard on a Sunday morning and needed to stop because of the conditions, and he came upon a little Baptist church. About a dozen people gathered inside. The regular preacher wasn't there, likely snowed in. So some poor layman showed up to church that day and realized he was going to be preaching. And that man stood up and opened to Isaiah 45, verse 22. And he explained that all we need to do to be saved is simply turn or look to Jesus. He commented briefly on the folly of any other attempt to save ourselves. He preached for about 15 minutes, concluding by making a direct appeal to Charles himself. Prior to that, Charles Spurgeon did not know Jesus. But God saw fit to use that preacher, preaching in that blizzard, to draw Charles Spurgeon to himself. None of us know the name of the man who preached the gospel unexpectedly that morning. Very unlikely he woke up that morning thinking he was going to lead a man to a Christ, let a man let alone a man who had become the greatest preacher of the 19th century. Which of our neighbors, our co-workers, people living in Georgetown, would believe if they heard? One day all will bow, some reluctantly with great fear and shame, some glory that they are in Christ, their strength, their righteousness. Some will get to join in the renewed earth marked by justice and salvation, and others will be barred from entering, condemned instead to a hell of their own making. But it is God's heart that all know him. He hasn't hidden himself, and nor should we. So Maple Avenue, let us make him known. Would you pray with me? We've seen much of your heart in this passage. May your heart be our heart. Amen.